Hello and welcome to another episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, your chance to get a distinctly Northern perspective on the big politics stories of the week and maybe hear some views on the issues from outside the Westminster bubble. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who follows politics across the amazing north of England, from Scarborough to Sefton, and from North Shields to South Yorkshire, and I put it all in a daily email newsletter called The Northern Agenda. This podcast gives me a chance to interview some of the Northern politicians and thought leaders who are making the news. Our main guest today is one of the country's leading experts in what is undoubtedly the most pressing issue of the modern age, climate change. Professor Piers Forster leads a research centre in Leeds that's devoted to coming up with solutions to our climate crisis and has recently become chair of the body that advises our government on what it should be doing. But are they listening? Find out a little later. By the time you listen to this podcast, you'll probably know the result in Selby and Ainsty, one of three by-elections being held this week, which could see a trio of very different seats change hands from Conservative to Labour. If Labour can overturn the Tories' majority of 20,000 in what was a safe blue seat, there'll be cock-a-hoop, and Conservative MPs across the North will be feeling more anxious than ever about their prospects in the next general election. But actually, it's been one of Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer's tougher weeks. He's been forced to front up to the fact that some of what he'd hoped to offer the electorate next year just won't be possible because, to coin a phrase, there's no money left. So it means that the Labour government won't end the cap on benefits for families with more than two children, something a number of prominent Labour politicians have previously expressed their outrage about. An example of this anger that has been caused in some sections of the Labour Party came from Jamie Driscoll, the socialist North of Tyne mayor, who has quit the party to try and become the first mayor of the North East as an independent after being barred from Labour's own shortlist. In his parting shot, he told Keir Starmer, you've you turned on so many promises, £28 billion to tackle the climate emergency, free school meals, ending university tuition fees, reversing NHS privatisation, in fact, a list of broken promises too long to repeat. So, who better to ask about Labour's much more prudent approach to spending than Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, who could be in charge of the public purse strings in just a few months' time. She was speaking at a meeting in her home city of Leeds of Northern Gritstone, an organisation we featured on the podcast before, which invests in innovative ideas from Northern universities and aims to turn them into big impactful businesses. I had a chance to speak to Rachel for a few minutes and this is what she said. So the conference we're at today, it's all about turning uh, sort of innovative academic ideas into the big uh, sort of companies of the future. What's your message that you're coming here today to deliver to the people who are here? So this conference is organised by Northern Gritstone, which is basically an investment fund, but an investment fund with a difference because they only invest in startup businesses coming out of three universities. That's Leeds, Sheffield and Manchester. And they are raising millions of pounds and have raised millions of pounds to invest in these seeds of ideas that could become the, the businesses, the, uh, the innovations of tomorrow, whether that is in uh, areas like life sciences, in advanced manufacturing, in uh, green industries of the future. There are fantastic ideas coming out of these brilliant universities a big challenge for them is turning those ideas into viable businesses and then to grow those businesses. Absolutely. And what would 
a Labour government, if you were to get in, do for organisations like this? And, and more widely, I guess what people want to know, uh, events like this and in the North in general, what, what can you offer the North of England that the Conservative government is not offering currently? I want Britain to be the best place to start and grow a business. And I want that to be true wherever you live in Britain. But at the moment, 46% of uh, VC funding, venture capital funding, goes to businesses in the south of England, in London and the southeast. And if that investment came to businesses in the north as much as it did to London and the southeast, it would be around a billion pounds more in the northern economy. And so I want to support uh, organisations like Northern Gritstone, like the great universities in the north of England, to turn their fantastic ideas into businesses, creating wealth, employment and opportunity in the north of England, because there's so much potential. There are fantastic ideas out there, but we need to unlock those. I feel at the moment it's sometimes a bit like an airplane trying to fly with just one engine and we need two engines and those engines need to be the north of England and the south of England we need both of them to be contributing and I want people in the north of England to have a, a greater opportunity for our potential to be unlocked because ideas and talent is evenly distributed across the whole of the United Kingdom and yet opportunity today is not I want to extend that opportunity so that you can succeed and get on wherever you live it's funny because I think a lot of the stuff you've just said, I could imagine coming out of Boris Johnson's mouth uh, a couple of years ago, like uh, uh, those kind of uh, those kind of images. I mean, so I guess what people want to know is who maybe think that levelling up and sort of bringing the North, creating opportunity in the North hasn't happened in the way that they would like yet. What are you going to do differently that the government at the moment is, is not doing in, the, in, this, in this area? So obviously we're at this specific conference today, so I'm, I'm focusing today on how we can help start-up businesses, small businesses, businesses trying to, uh, to scale up and grow. And one practical thing that could be done is to try and unlock some of the money that sits in pension funds today. At the moment, often getting a very poor return on that investment, but some of that money could be used to invest in some of these great businesses that are starting out. And that's where organisations like Northern Gritstone come in, because you can invest alongside some of these big funds that are going to get a return on those investments. Uh, but we also need, and this is at the root of everything that I talk about, stability in the economy. Because so many businesses say to me that they're putting off investment because they're concerned about inflation, they're concerned around uh, interest rates, they're concerned about the fact that you know in the last six months of last year there were four different chancellors of the Exchequer and every month it seemed a different education secretary, a different housing secretary. We need greater stability in the economy. I want interest rates and inflation to be as low as they can be to help businesses to succeed and get on. So that stability, but then also that ambitious plan for growth, whether it's Labour's modern industrial strategy, our plans to make Britain the best place to start and grow a business, the reforms we want to see to business rates to help small businesses and high streets to thrive, our reform as well to the apprenticeship levy so that businesses can use it more flexibly to invest in the skills they need to grow their businesses and give people the opportunity to get those skills to succeed. Now, as you've alluded to, you are, with a, you know, maybe a year, maybe more than a year out from the next election, you are trying to convince uh, the public that 
you know, you're going to be able to transform the lives of people in the north of England, but also with this economic context that you've described. So it's a bit of, it's, I guess it's a tricky balancing act to pull off. So I was hoping just to sort of establish your position on a couple of key things. You've spoken about the, uh, the Green Jobs Plan. You want to uh, invest 28 billion a year uh, in uh, the green jobs of the future, but you've, uh, I gather your position is now that that is something you will aim to do over the course of Parliament rather than it being something you do in the first year. Now, obviously, in the north, you've got offshore wind in Grimsby, hydrogen in Teesside, tidal power in the northwest. I mean, those, the companies that are involved in that, they need that certainty, don't they, that to, to invest. Do you feel that you can offer that to them? What do you say to the, you know, the people who are interested in investing in these, in, in these fields? There are huge opportunities in some of the industries of the future, whether that is the transition to net zero, the great potential we have in Britain around life sciences, around AI and the use of data. I see huge opportunity. What I don't see today is a government that matches the scale of ambition that businesses have for their business and people have for their communities. Labour's Green Prosperity Plan is about investing alongside business in the opportunities of the future. But for me, economic stability has always got to come first. You can't have any plan for growth that isn't built on that rock of fiscal and economic stability. And so the fiscal rules that I've set out that would underpin all the policies of an incoming government are for me non-negotiable because you saw just last year what happens when a government loses control of the nation's finances and it resulted in higher mortgage rates uh, for everybody in Britain, a price that people are paying every day uh, when they are making their, their mortgage payments or coming up to the end of their mortgage deal. And it does mean that plans like Labour's Green Prosperity Plan has to fit the economic realities that an incoming Labour government is going to face. And so that ambition is there, but we'll get there in a way that doesn't undermine in any way the economic and fiscal stability that is so important for businesses and families. And on a similar uh, theme, Labour has said recently that it won't scrap the two-child benefit limit, which prevents parents from claiming universal credit or child tax credit for a third child after 2017. Now, in Yorkshire, I think there's more than 35 families affected by this policy, and it's places like Salford and Gateshead in the north who are the worst affected. The northeast is the only region where po child poverty is getting worse rather than better. So what, how are you going to turn that round as a Labour Party government if you don't uh, abandon this uh, benefits cap, which you know, a lot of people in Labour really think ought to be abandoned? Well, first of all, I do understand the huge pressure that family finances are under right now, whether it is the higher inflation pushing up the weekly food shop, the extortionate level of energy uh, bills and indeed rent and mortgages uh, going up. It's why, for example, I've said that the windfall tax on the huge profits that the energy giants are making should be expanded and we would use that money to help people with their energy uh, bills. It's also why we've said that we should be insulating homes uh, so that need less energy to heat them in the first place and why we would be building more uh, houses to, uh, to, to help people who um, are struggling with rent and uh, mortgages. But as I said in the answer to my previous question, and I can, you know, I will repeat it again and again, 
everything in Labour's manifesto will be fully costed and fully funded. And that is absolutely essential because you've got to have a strong economy built on strong foundations to be able to do anything. And in fact, if you lose control of the public finances, as the Conservatives did last year, it's people on the lowest incomes who end up paying the price for that with higher inflation and higher uh, interest rates. So there are good Labour things that we're not going to be able to do because of the dire economic inheritance that the Conservatives are going to leave us with. That doesn't mean we're not going to do anything. The windfall tax to help people uh, with their energy bills, the free breakfast clubs for all primary school aged children um, paid for by getting rid of the non-DOM tax status, that means some of the wealthiest people in this country pay so little tax here. Those are some practical things that we can do to help get money into the pockets of ordinary uh, families uh, and particularly families on the lowest of incomes. So good Labour policies that you'd like to do that maybe aren't possible at the moment is one of those building HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail in full, which is something Labour has promised to do. Is that still something that you can commit to definitely doing? I want to see better transport links in the north of England, including HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, and I want to see HS2 come to uh, Leeds. You know, those things are long-term plans that are not about uh, additional money in the next uh, Parliament. Um, so we do want to see those things. Are we going to be able to do everything straight away? No, we're not. But those big infrastructure projects are ones anyway that are over a long period of time. So is that saying that you do want to do both those things but you won't be able to put we the money deliver, in in the, in the first parliament. We want to deliver both of those projects in full but we need to make sure that everything fits within the fiscal rules but the thing about long term investments is that they do take a, a long time and you know we've been talking about HS2 for what 15 years uh, now and we still don't have uh, any trains so the government need to get a grip of the finances if I was Chancellor I would get a grip of the finances of those projects and we would look to deliver those projects in full but that is not going to happen within a five-year period and uh, I think everybody's realistic about that. Now uh, there's a, a mayor in the northeast of England, Jamie Driscoll, who until uh, yesterday was a member of the Labour Party. He's uh, quit so that he can run as an independent to become the first northeast mayor and he was uh, scathing in his criticism of Keir Starmer uh, as he departed the party, accusing him of broken promises and U-turns. I mean, what, what, what do you? What's your response to that? It's up to Jamie Driscoll what he does, but he was ruled out of standing as the Labour candidate next year uh, because Keir has taken an incredibly tough stance on anti-Semitism. He said it was the first commitment he made as the incoming leader of the Labour Party that he would tear anti-Semitism out by its roots. And you know, Jamie Driscoll, against good advice, uh, shared a platform with, um, with with people who had been expelled from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism. And I'm not going to take make any apologies for that tough stance on anti-Semitism. It is a, a deep shame and a deep stain on the Labour Party that when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the party that anti-Semitism took hold. Uh, and so that's why Jamie Driscoll was barred from standing as a Labour candidate. Yesterday we selected an amazing woman, Kim McGuinness, to be the candidate uh, for that North East mayoralty uh, next year. She will, if she's elected, be the second female uh, mayor um, after Tracy Brabian, of course, here in West Yorkshire. And I look forward to campaigning uh, alongside Kim uh, to have a, another Labour mayor and another female mayor. 
final question, Rachel. Mayors in uh, across the North, Labour and Conservative, when they're talking about levelling up and what more they can do to improve life chances in their local areas, they one of the things on their shopping list is that they want uh, tax raising or even tax lowering powers. They want that fiscal devolution to give them an extra lever to pull to sort of promote economic growth. I know that is something you are not in favour of. Can you just explain why you don't like that as, as an idea? Well, look, we're in a cost of living crisis at the moment, and I have no desire to see taxes on working people uh, any higher. And I wouldn't want to be accused of uh, trying to have higher taxes by the back door in, uh, uh, in, in devolving some of those powers that we might see taxes increases on, uh, on working people. But, you know, I was in this building last December where we launched a report um, that Gordon Brown wrote for Keir Starmer on uh, how we could devolve more powers and more resources to local leaders because Kira and me believe that the best decisions are made when they're made in conjunction with the people who live in those uh, areas and better decisions are made that uh, um, are closer to the ground. So we've got plans, whether it is on skills, on employment support, on housing, to give mayors and local authorities a greater power. And I think that will deliver uh, better services for local people and better value money for the taxpayers as well. Rachel Reeves, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. It's worth clarifying one point she made in relation to the filmmaker Ken Loach, who was expelled from the Labour Party in 2021. Mr Loach said at the time of his expulsion that the decision was for supporting a recently prescribed organisation, Labour Against the Witch Hunt. No public accusations of anti-Semitism were made against him at the time by Labour. Now, listeners may not have heard of a man called Joseph Priestley, but he's a hugely influential scientist and philosopher, credited with the discovery of oxygen in the late 18th century and even the creation of soda water. He worked at Mill Hill Chapel in Leeds, and to this day his statue still stands just a few yards away. Fast forward 200 years and the centre that bears the name of this inspirational Yorkshire scientist, the Priestley Centre for Climate Futures, based in Leeds, is using the expertise of 400 academics from a host of disciplines to shape a better future for the world, in its words, in the face of the climate crisis that shows every sign of already being here. Director of the centre is my guest today, Professor Piers Forster, an expert in climate physics who's helped write some of the most globally significant reports on climate change. And as of last month, he's the interim chair of the Climate Change Committee, the independent body that advises the UK government on how to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. It feels like a critical time, I think, for this most pressing of issues. Just in the last few days, the committee has warned that government backing for new oil and coal, airport expansion plans and slow progress on heat pumps show that the UK has lost its leadership on climate issues. And as Minister Zach Goldsmith quit the government, he accused Rishi Sunak of being uninterested in action on climate change. But don't forget, there's potentially a huge opportunity for the North of England if the right policies and funding are put in place. Political and business leaders here are chomping at the bit to create thousands of new green jobs in the region's industrial heartlands like Teesside, and Merseyside. So there's a huge amount to discuss and it's great to have Piers Forster on the podcast. Welcome Piers. It's good to be here at this very important time when the 
quite a lot going on. Indeed, there really is. So first of all, can you just give us a bit more of an insight into what the Priestly Centre does? How, how do you go about, uh, in, in your words, shaping a better future for all our communities, our region and the world? Yes, well, the whole thing started because we have a lot of key academic expertise and and I want to make sure that we are going to harness this thing correctly so, so we can really capitalise on what we have got to try and address the climate crisis in the most urgent way possible. Um, we can see the effect of climate change occurring everywhere with the heat waves we're having across much of Europe, Canada and North America currently and, and they are devastating. Uh, and we haven't got time to sit in the ivory towers. We have to get on with the business of trying to, to both build more resilience into our society to make it cope with the threat of climate change, but also to try and decarbonize it and particularly give the people we educate the necessary skills and understanding to get out there to the big wide world to really make a difference whether they work in industry or whether they work in government or for an NGO, they can really hopefully make a difference and begin to transform our society. So that would be the idea, but we have lots of detailed things we want to put behind those aspects. The first thing we've done quite successfully where we want to continue is to try and affect both international climate kind of policy and also the UK government policy directly. This is to really build good working relationships with government departments and things to try and make sure they have access to the best information possible. We're also doing a lot of really good work with different city regions and local authorities. We have established, for example, these climate commissions where we have both the Leeds Climate Commission and the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission where we where we try and try and work with the businesses and the local authorities to try and come up with good ways of decarbonizing ourselves. I think I saw that you recently helped publish some research which suggests that greenhouse gas emissions are currently at their highest ever level. And obviously, you mentioned the heat waves that we're seeing globally. I mean, does what we're currently seeing in the news and the research that you've just done suggest that we're quite a long way, as a, both as a country and, and as, a, as a planet, to where we need to be on tackling climate change? Or, or are there causes for optimism, in your view? Well, it's, that's, that is a very good question. I've been doing this job for a long time. I started doing my climate science research in the 90s at the beginning of them. Uh, and since then, things have got a whole lot worse. We're producing more emissions than ever before. We're seeing many more climate extremes than ever before. And in a certain way, well, of course, they can make one quite depressed, but I guess that I'm perhaps inherently an optimist that, that I do see over this period that things have changed. The, uh, the first thing is that we, we're now really confident in the kind of science, that we really don't get the same kind of challenges we've had to the science we've had before, uh, uh, and the science is believed and trusted by the world governments. Um, but we also do see 
changes in the energy supply to the and not only in this country but in a lot of other countries as well um we we see this big shift to renewable energy uh and we see a decrease in the production of coal uh, especially in the developed countries but that's beginning to filter down to china and india and countries like china for example built more renewable capacity last year than the rest of the world put together uh, and we are seeing a similar push in india now and other countries so, so we certainly are beginning to see things change um of course we would like to see things change more urgently and we have a long way to go um and we also have to decarbonize the way we travel in our cars of course but we we even begin to see those changes so we're seeing more and more electric cars sold in the country all the time uh i am generally optimistic and the thing is we don't we don't have a choice as a society because until we can reach these net zero targets we talk about things are going to get worse uh and we can't afford to do that we have to come together as the international community uh, uh, and we have to be able to solve it for our own existential existence if you like that the, you know we we have to do it to protect our livelihoods and our agriculture and our society so we're going to have to do it it's just a matter of when we do it and the kind of way we do it uh, and the other thing is that i've got involved since the 2000s in these international negotiations and you can also look at them from a class half full perspective as well i do think in a certain way you are constantly constantly frustrated that they aren't progressing as fast as you want them to but you really you really can see things improve over time we had the important paris negotiations in 2015 uh, that did did really get countries coming together to make a firm commitment like never before to try and keep temperatures below one and a half degrees and although that doesn't have an immediate impact of course it it, it does eventually feed back to changes in kind of policies and and it does get things done uh, and i just think it's so Im- important that we do get these international cooperative agreements to to try and kind of progress things because we yeah we do live on one earth and we eventually have to come together to take care of it really now at the risk of being a bit uh, parochial i was going to bring it back to the north of the north of england when i talk to political leaders in the north uh, what i hear quite a lot is that our region the north of england has historically been one of the biggest polluters over the over the decades and centuries but because of uh, its industrial heritage and its natural uh, advantages we've near the coastline and so forth it's now decarbonizing faster than the rest of the country and really needs to be at the heart of the country's net zero efforts i mean would you would you agree with that summation yes i absolutely would do certainly i really enjoy living and working in the kind of north of england and i do think that it's so much capacity to both set an example for the rest of the country and also set an example internationally and that's what i'm doing kind of working in this part of the world um 
the first thing is because of that industrial heritage, we have a lot of the key workers and a lot of the key industries in the country, which are historically some of the biggest hitters. But if we can get this industry to transform, we can really set an example for how to do it. A good example there is Green Steel, where I think with the right investments, we can really set a good example for the rest of the world about how to get it done. Um, And we have huge capacity for developing the hydrogen economy uh, and to, to really show how we can use hydrogen both as a store of energy, but also as a way to decarbonize industry. Um, there's also opportunity for carbon capture and removal as well. And this will be very important if we decarbonize because it is very, very hard to decarbonize parts of agriculture and also parts of industry and aviation. So for these sectors of the economy, we have to have some way of removing carbon dioxide and we have the potential to take it out of the atmosphere and put it under the ground. Uh, and I think that potentially is a exciting opportunity in this part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what could we or what could the government be doing to speed up that process? Because I guess the reality is that uh, you know, Teesside is trying to develop its capacity to produce and store hydrogen, and you know, the northeast is trying to develop its capacity with offshore wind, and Merseyside is trying to develop its capacity on tidal power, etc. But other parts of the world are doing this also, and they, you know, it's, they're sort of a first movers advantage, isn't there? It's a bit of a sort of arm, arms race to, to 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 coin a phrase. I mean, is is the government doing enough? to allow the north of England to use its natural advantages and its industrial heritage to create these jobs? Or is, is there more it could be it could be doing? We absolutely think there is more it could be doing. If you look at the last progress report we just published at the Climate Change Committee, we were disappointed that it wasn't making the same internal investments in, in our own industry that we see being done in North America, in the rest of the European countries and in China. And really what we want the government to do is come up with some very key decisions that really, really go to exactly where in the country it will make these investments uh, and in what sectors of the economy. The government has, has really said that it doesn't want to make these investments, but it doesn't say where, when, and, and exactly the way the investment will work. So where, when, and how it will make the investments. Um, uh, and we think it should urgently decide exactly how it will support these industries. Um, and there are key opportunities and what we need to do when the government make those decisions, we have to build up capacity among the workers as well. So we have to provide the right education and the right skills from our further educating colleges to our universities and to be able to work together to really support these industries. And what I don't want to see is that this first move advantage to go to other parts of the country or to other countries where I think 
we have a key opportunity to be a real world leader in this part of the country. And I think we have a can have a key competitive advantage for our industry as well. But but we have to get on and make these investments and make these decisions. They aren't going to occur without these initial investments and without that very clear direction from government. The Climate Change Committee has been quite clear in, in its most recent report that there should be no net airport expansion across the UK. So I'm interested in your view of sort of what's going on with airports in the north uh, and, and locally in, in Leeds. Uh, I think Leeds Bradford Airport, it's not building a new terminal that it wanted to build because it looked like it was going to be a, a public inquiry into it. But it has spent quite a lot of money upgrading its facilities and it's boasting about reaching a record number of destinations. Manchester Airport is approaching its uh, pre-pandemic passenger levels. And I see that Teesside Airport is also trying to grow as best it can. I mean, what do you think of that? Should the government be limiting the growth of airports like these? Or is it, is it, is it not a huge problem, sort of what, what they're doing in your view? I do think we, we really have to look at how to decarbonise the aviation industry. We're, we, of course, don't want to destroy the in, industry. It's very important that people in this part of the world can travel around the world for work and can a tourist and see can family. At the same time as doing that, the industry does have to really come up with a good and credible pathway to net zero, just like just like other industries. And it can do this partly from investing in sustainable aviation replacement for kerosene and perhaps hydrogen aircraft coming on. But these are kind of longer term solutions and they take time. It's a notorious conservative industry to change aeroplanes and te- technology. So they're not going to be instant fixes to decarbonizing. So, so we have to think about committing the demand aviation as well. Uh, uh, and if you look at the country holistically, we still have plenty of capacity. So we do recommend that until the government does look more holistically at demand and the economy and precisely what capacity we need in what part of the country, there should be no airport expansion. We should effectively have a moratorium on airport expansion until the government come together to collectively decide where to expand capacity and where to contract capacity uh, and to try and see exactly what kind of capacity requirement is compatible with its own net zero target. That's my final question. I'm just, uh, I've been seeing, I think there was some research, which I think the University of Leeds did, which suggested that there is, uh, you know, still a lot of public support for efforts to tackle climate change, despite, you know, all the sort of pressures on cost of living and on, uh, on, on the economy. Like people are still very concerned about this and they, they want to see something done. But I think it, it feels, I imagine for some people, like they uh, they feel a bit powerless to really do anything. And, and it, it, it's all in the hands of big business and, you know, government officials having big diplomatic summits and the individual people can't do that much 
to change it. So I mean, if people are listening to this uh, at home and they're wondering what what can I, what's the most effective thing for me to do as a an individual citizen who is concerned about this? I mean, should they just be sort of lobbying their elected politicians to do more or do things themselves personally or is it a mixture of a mixture of both the first thing is about communication like we're doing today that i i think it's not talked about enough or not talked about in the right way enough it's not talked about the opportunities enough it's often talked about oh so have a look at this this extreme we're experiencing or something like that but that's not really tied to what we do out in terms of the solution so so i think collectively coming together to talk about what we're doing individually what our politicians could do and what our kind of workplace should be working to i, I think we all have a responsibility to look at the way we could live our lives in a more energy efficient way and to see how we could work in a more efficient way but but then also to really challenge our politicians to think about all the decisions they make from day to day and all the decisions the local authority make from day to day and will they make climate change worse or will they improve it and that's what i like to think so in terms of what we can do kind of practically of course we can change to drive an electric car or we can get out of our car altogether or not drive such a big car or we can look to insulate our homes or tell our landlord to and try and encourage our landlord to uh, and also try and install things like air sort heat pumps and things and be one of the first adopters of the new exciting technologies where we could look at the way we go on holiday do we have to jet off to somewhere that might be very hot anyway or can we enjoy our summer holidays in the north of England and directly improve our own economy? Um, so I think there are things we can do both individually and then there are things we can do collectively. But I think the best thing to do is to is to really begin to talk about it in a way that encourages solutions and think of all the good co-benefits that come with it. I mean, even if you don't, care about climate change at all you might want to drive an electric car or get an electric bicycle because they're very cool things that work very well you might want to take more exercise for for example improve air quality of your towns by getting rid of the most polluting cars and trucks and things or you might want to shift to eating a healthier diet uh, and these things can all benefit yourself personally. They can benefit your back pocket personally as well. Uh, uh, and we can all get a, hopefully a healthier and happier society that is ultimately more resilient to the threats of climate change. Well, that's a nice uh, optimistic note to end on. Piers Forster, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.